Have you ever considered how the authority structure in your church can permit certain kinds of sins? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. So there's basically three different ways that you can structure authority in the church, although there's lots of different flavors of each of them. But there's Episcopal where you have a hierarchy, like the Roman Catholic Church. There's Presbyterian where you have the elders rule and it's across multiple churches. And then there's Congregational where the authority is in a specific congregation. So since God gave us authorities, and one of the primary things that authorities do is constrain sin, which of these ways are best for constraining sin? I think it's important to recognize that there's no uh, perfect authority structure, perfect in the sense that it constrains all sin, because fundamental to this is the idea that men are fallen, Christians are still still have the old man in them, and so there is going to be sin, there is going to be of course, wolves come into the church, and so every every structure um, has has those sinners in it, and that will manifest itself in how they relate to uh, the authority or use the authority that the church gives them. Um, and so we're kind of going to go through a few different uh, different authority structures, like was mentioned. Uh, but and the the purpose here is not to work through which is the best authority structure. Uh, that's probably outside the scope of uh, any one-hour podcast. But but that also doesn't mean that they're all created equal because some are, some are a lot better than others. You know, we're not going to be saying, well, you know, Roman papacy, you know, you can pick that, you can pick congregationalism. That's not the point to equate them all, um, but not to give a definitive book of church order either. I mean, one of the things that strikes me as you were saying that is you have Paul in Acts 20, and he's you know meeting with the elders of Ephesus and Miletus, and he says to them, I know wolves will rise up from among you. He's looking at these men that he was involved with appointing, and he still says out of those men in front of him, he says, some of you will turn out to be wolves. So, you know, in one sense, that should be a comfort to us meaning that when we see him rise up among us, it's not like, well, we really messed up because Paul, you know, an a, a apostle of Jesus Christ, also couldn't detect it. But at the same time, it also is a warning to us that we should always recognize that there will be wolves that rise up. One of the other things that I think is, is relevant here is when you look at, you think about authority structures, like when we think about the government, the primary purpose of like the civil government is to constrain evil. But when you look at other forms of government, other institutions that God has created, they're actually created to do specific types of work as well. And so like, like a family, a family is a, is a center of work. The, the father is to constrain evil, but he's also to be industrious. And the government's primary job isn't necessarily to be directing work and to be causing specific – it's not to be in charge of the work that all these different people are doing. And the church isn't completely in that, but there's a sense where the church is the family of God, so it's this – it's an as there's an aspect of there's a family aspect to it there's a governmental aspect to it and so part of when you look at authority structures one of the things that authority structures do is they make certain types of work more efficient and they allow certain types of work to be done in an efficient way and so that's part of this as well not just constraining evil but also that the church has a real mission in the world and it's carried out by different it's carried out collectively, it's carried out individually, it's carried out in units. With, and, and those different authority structures, they can hinder or promote that type of work as well. 
And I mean, you know, you were putting it in terms of work, and I would put it probably more in terms of discipleship. I mean, the government's not supposed to have somebody come out to be a quote-unquote better person. You know, the citizen, their point isn't to make the citizen better. The point of the family is to raise children so that they are better behaved, that they're, you know, it's, it's not just to constrain sin, it's actually to disciple. Right. And the purpose of the church is not just to constrain sin, it's to disciple, which ties directly to productivity. And it's, but it's not just productivity, it's actually turning them from sin, it's making them more capable, it's doing all the things that, you know, so that's how I see the church and the family sin, tied together. Not just towards righteousness. Right, not just, that's a good way to put it. And so when you think about that, you know, the church structure, when you start to emulate a government, well, a government's purpose is a lot different than what the church and the family is, because yes, they're all to constrain sin. But as you said, the civil magistrate, that is really, they're the avenger of God's wrath. I mean, that's right. what they are. That is kind of the, the you know, that's, that's the major thing that they're doing. While the major thing of these other two organizations is more discipleship. What we have to recognize is that the church is made up of men that are saved, some, but there's always a mix of the clean and the unclean. You never, you know, we can't see each other's heart. We can't know that everybody's saved. But even in the clean, you have a verse like Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 that says, but you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. So everybody still has this old man that they're wrestling with. And because of that, when we think about church polity, one of the things that it's supposed to do is to protect the church against the fact that we still have sin natures, that we haven't been made perfect. We're not holy. We're not Christ. Christ, you could put any temptation you wanted in front of him, and he wouldn't fall. That's not true. For men in the church. So when we, whenever we think about the gospel, it's important to recognize that the gospel is about authority. I mean, it's kind of the heart of it in a real sense, right? Because the reality is you think you're your own God until you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord. And accepting him as your Lord means now you're accepting authority. You're accepting somebody to have authority over you. So even as we talk about these things and talk about the problems in church government, it's really important to first establish without authorities, it's a lot worse. Anarchy is like the worst state of man. And so we can talk about the problems in all these different ones, but we shouldn't forget that the gospel is about authority, and it's accepting the authorities that God appointed. So Romans 13, 1 through 2 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So even as we talk about that there's problems in different ones, that doesn't mean that you just reject the idea that God set authority in the church. Right. I mean, if you're talking about, you're talking about the church, fundamental principles are God is an authority. God is the one who we should all serve. Two, God, it pleases God to work through his creatures. God actually puts some creatures in charge of other creatures. And I mean, and that is, that's, that's just fundamental, fundamental to, to the, the world. creation. And right? so there are sinners who are in charge of other sinners. And so as you look at all these systems, you're going to see situations where sinners are in charge of other sinners. And so if you're, if you try to reject it because 
like you know, the church is full of hypocrites. So there are people who've sinned against me. Or you've, you're just you're doing it here. You're rejecting the will of God because it is the will of God that there are sinners who have authority and they're over other sinners. And this is the nature of the world. And this is the nature of the world that God has chosen, and He's in charge. And He's not surprised when the leaders go astray, when they take advantage of their position, when they don't do what they're supposed to do. Because he knew he was appointing sinners, and that doesn't give them an excuse for their sin, but it also doesn't give us the excuse to go, well, you know, we see problems with the Presbyterian system, or we see problems with the congregational system, so therefore we're going to reject elders. No, to reject the authority that God has put in place is a sin, and it's also very damaging. It's very damaging to you. It's damaging to your family. I've seen people do this, and it's incredibly damaging when you reject the authority of the church. Another fundamental principle would be Almost invariably, when you hear someone complain about an authority, it would be worse if that person was in charge. I mean, this. I mean, and obviously there are exceptions, but the exceptions are very, very, very rare. In most situations, the person who's sending their complaint, whether you're talking about in the workplace, whether you're talking about with government, whether you're talking about in the church, the person who is complaining, it would not be better if they were suddenly put in that position. And you can and you can do the experiment, or you can just watch yourself and, and look at human nature, but that's, that's almost universally true. So before we get into some of the more, more detailed things we have to say about these formed of church government, I think we want to set a few, few guardrails on what, what the Bible says about church government. And, and one of those would be that there's no support for episcopacy in, in Scripture or papacy, where you have bishops who are ruling over many churches and where you have a very top-down form of form of authority where there's the, you know, with the Pope, you have the Pope is the, the representative of Christ, and then he's the one that everyone gets their authority from. And, and that's something you don't see. Um, there's a few verses that they try to twist, even in the translation, to get them to say that, but that's really not in Scripture. And I mean, it's not in Scripture for the church. There are certainly, you look at when King David's ruling, he does it. When you look at various civil magistrates, they do it. But, you know, and what people want to do is they want to take that structure and they say, well, you know, in Deuteronomy 1, he produced, he appointed heads of tens and heads of 50 and heads of 100 and heads of 1,000. So, therefore, there should be a hierarchy in the church. But you don't see that anywhere in the Old Testament in the church. That's in the state. And the state is structured very different because it has different purposes. And we should even talk about there's reasons for that as well. God works in the world. He works everywhere. His spirit is active in the world. But God's spirit is not active in government or is not active in other institutions in the same way as it is active specifically within his church body. And there is a part of it where when you look at an organization like a government— they have to have these hierarchies. There is an absolute, they have a necessity of these things. Where God is working directly and working in a different way, God does not have need of the same sort of hierarchy. God does not have, you know, there's communication limitations, there's all these different things, but God working through his spirit. How many times have you come into a church and you've been having a thought or you've been having this, or this you find another church that's doing the exact same thing that you were doing, that they were, that this same thought was put on their heart, that they had been directed to move in a way, because in the end, God can work through his people and he could do these things in other places, but he doesn't, and he does do them in his church. And so there are you don't get to look at it and go, we know how it would be structured because of what God could do. 
But in the end, God is demonstrating his direct involvement in the church in a way that is different than he is directly involved with these other organizations and other institutions. Say it, say it like this, maybe, that the every form of government that God has established is somehow or other picturing something about the character of God. And so what he's doing with the forms of government established in the family and in the state are different than what he's doing. He's showing you a different side of himself, a different picture of himself and his interaction with his creation, with the way that the authority has been structured in the church, with the way he's instructed that to go. And there's even specific ways of that that, that, that are carried out in the way he structured the church. Exactly. And there's, I mean, when you look at the state, there's, you know, there is a scoping difference that's there too, right? Because things can happen at a, a state to state level. Like if you look at the, you know, United States, you could have, you know, in theory, you could have Virginia invade North Carolina, and that would require somebody more than a local mayor to deal with. And so there's always been hierarchies in civil magistrate because there are different scopes of, of crime, if you will. There's different cro- scopes of, of uh, rebellion is a more general term. And so because of that, that government has to have that. And the church wants to think it will be more efficient if it organizes the same way. But as you said, that's not the organization of the church. The organization of the church is the church is supposed to be edifying the believers for the work of the ministry. So it's supposed to be downward focus, not let's see how many churches we can get together so we can have this big organization so that we can put somebody in charge and they'll have more power and more influence. And, and it, it really goes badly when people try to do this in the church where they're taking this structure that makes sense for a civil magistrate because they're supposed to be constraining sin. And sometimes if you have an army invade with 100,000 people, you need to have leaders of thousands. You can't just have leaders of 10. But the church doesn't have the same function in the world, and so it doesn't need the same structure. Though it does start to get complicated because what about the Synod of Dort? What about the Council of Nicaea? Uh, what about a whole list of other church councils where they're saying we need them for particular reasons that are, and are going beyond church councils but to church decrees? And I would just argue even in the case of the synods, it wasn't their decree that had much weight. It wasn't because they didn't have any sword to back it up with. What it had weight with was their arguments because later you have other synods that were just as broadly joined together that everybody ignores. You know, it was in, what, 17 or 750 that they said that we should stop teaching the Word of God and start using pictures. Well, it's widely accepted in the Roman Catholic Church, but the rest of the church goes, that's garbage. And so it wasn't the strength of their arm that did it. It was the strength of their argument. So another principle here, a basic principle from Scripture, is that uh, the congregations have involvement in church government. You know, a really basic passage that you see this in are the, some of the passages on church discipline, like 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And that verse where he's writing to the Corinthian church, not to the, the elders of the church, uh, but, you know, the book is to the, 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 the whole church. And it's that you are the ones who are supposed to be, to be putting him out. And so, you know, there's different ways to organize that, but it is coming from the congregation. The congregation is the one that has the power of, of Christ given to it to, to execute those decrees. Right, and you see in 2 Corinthians 
where they did this, right? The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And so even there, it's making it clear it's the majority. It's not, it's not like you get the elders to decide when you're gathered together. It was They couldn't do it when they weren't gathered together because it requires the congregation. And when the congregation gathered together, it was the majority of the congregation. And I think a lot of congregations forget that they have real authority and real responsibility. You're really putting the axe to the root of the idea of, of church being something that you participate in and, and are a part of versus something that you observe and, you know, something that's there to just feed you, fill you, you know, you're, right. you're there to be entertained and, and not actually part of the, the labor and the work of, of being the thing. On the one hand, they, the congregation has responsibility, but it also biblically is to delegate that responsibility, right? In Acts 14, you know, when Paul goes back, he says, so when they, they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so it is important to appoint elders. It is in every church they were doing this. And, you know, one of the things that we can debate, and I don't think we want to have that debate right now, is, you know, what is a church? Because, you know, elders in every church, was that in Ephesus or was that in each meeting in Ephesus? You have Philemon, who has had a church meeting at his house, but yet Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And so, you know, as Josh was saying, that could be a long discussion. And we, you know, I don't think we want to spend the time discussing that now. But, but you know, the idea is plural elders, elders in a church, you know, it gets to be harder to say exactly what is a church. Another thing that's really worth pointing out is that elders are not separate from the congregation completely, that they're not, they're, they are part of the flock. And when you look at scripture, I mean, I think is it Peter, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, talks about that elders are to be in samples in the flock. And in samples means they're within. So, I mean, elders are part of the flock. So another way just to summarize it would be an elder is also a sheep. And so, and yes, he has responsibility. Yes, he has authority. And yes, he's to lead. But he is still a sheep. He is not fundamentally different than the other members of the flock in his nature and in his substance. And that's, that's really important because it's easy to separate them and turn them. And an elder is an older brother. And so, I mean, you know, when you're three years old, when you're one year old and you meet your older brother who's an adult, you look at him very differently than whenever you're suddenly, when you're 20 and he's 40, you realize, hey, he's just a grown-up human. And there's a point where everyone should understand elders are just grown-up Christians. That's what they are. They are mature Christians who That's what they should be. (laughs) That's what they should be. And making them into something more than that is really dangerous. And there's, yeah, and it's a big problem with a lot of these structures is that's exactly what happens. And one of the questions as we go through these structures is, is that structure inherently pushing to create the shepherds you know, and that's why the term elder is a better title for the office as opposed to shepherding is the work, because the elder is used throughout the Old Testament to basically mean the the older people in the family, the the leaders of the family that are chosen not even necessarily because of age, but they're the ones that people have more respect for, and that's why they're the leaders. And it's you know it's very much a family structure when you think of an elder. So the first of the basic uh, basic types of 
church structures is Episcopalian, where you have, you know, some pastor, elder over each church, and then a bunch of churches under a bishop, and a bunch of bishops under an archbishop, and then up to a cardinal, and maybe even a pope. So what what, what issues arise when you have that type of church structure? And just to be clear, when you talk about that, you're using the word Episcopalian with a little e to include any kind of structure that has that sort of a very tiered hierarchy, not just the denomination of Episcopalians. Right, right. And so I think that the first problem is that you've adopted the civil magistrate view of the church, that the church is a civil magistrate as opposed to being more like a family structure where the purposes are very different and the way you keep order the way you keep you know when you have a hierarchy like that a lot of it is about keeping order that's why companies have hierarchies so that you can so that the person at top can keep order of everything and the only way that they can establish the order is by you know direct influence and so they have a hierarchy because they can't directly influence everybody and that's just not what the church is like because Christ gives his spirit to everyone who believes. And so he doesn't need a hierarchy because he, he directly communicates with each one, which is what humans can't do. And as soon as you do that, you know, historically, as soon as you do that, you create a big divide between the sacred and the secular. And this was a big part of the Reformation is going – there's not a big divide between the sacred and the sec- secular. It's, you know, everybody who's saved is sacred. It doesn't matter if your role is to be a priest or your role is to be a, uh, you know, to be a, a farmer or to be a blacksmith or to, to, you know, raise children. It doesn't matter. You're still equivalent in the eyes of God and there, everybody has the spirit. I mean, one of the, so one of the issues obviously with this is, you don't find this in scripture. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't, I, I can't think of a proof text where you go to and it goes, this is how you have to structure. It is a, it's a, it's a pragmatic argument. It's just someone saying, I want the church to work this way. And for the church to work this way, it has to be structured this way. So therefore we're structuring it this way. I mean, that, that's, that's a real issue. I mean, the closest thing you'd have is the apostles, you know, 12 apostles, Right. Uh, but they're appointed by God to set up the church, and you don't see instructions on here's how you get new apostles for right. once these apostles die. Uh, so we, we don't have that indication that's supposed to be an ongoing thing. And even when you look at Acts 15, you see Peter arguing there. You see other elders of the church of Jerusalem arguing. It's James, the half-brother of Christ, that ends up leading it, not one of the apostles. And so... Even there, you see that there is not a strict hierarchy at all at the Jerusalem Council. It just it doesn't exist there. That's not the way the text reads. And, you know, in the end, I think the fundamental issue is that it starts to treat the people as if they're just subjects to be dealt with. They're just subjects to be told what to do. And that's not what, you know, that's not what John writes in Revelation that we are, right? In, in Revelation 1, 5, and 6, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, why do you say that the priests are appointed by the, you know, the, the, the Pope appoints the cardinals, the cardinals, the archbishops, the archbishops, the bishops, the bishops, the priests, and God says, Jesus Christ through John says, 
No, everyone has been directly appointed to be a priest by God. And so there doesn't that just kind of eliminates their primary source of power in the hierarchy because they say that they can transfer grace. And that's, you know, one of the one of the biggest issues with this and one of the biggest consequences, um, which you see most clearly in the Catholic Church. I mean, other ones uh, potentially have the same problem and definitely inclined to the same problem where, you know, where is the power? Where is the authority coming from? Is it coming up from the people appointing their leadership? Or is it coming from God appointing the Pope, the Pope appointing the bishops, the bishops appointing the priests? And, and when you have that you know, top-down structure, you end up with some really weird consequences. Uh, there was an article a few years ago, I think it was a few years ago, maybe even not that long ago, um, but where there were thousands of baptisms invalidated by the priest's use of one wrong word is what the, the headline of the article says. Because he was saying, I think the issue was that instead of saying, I baptize you, he was saying, we baptize you which, you know, most churches wouldn't care that much about it. But in the Catholic Church, he has the authority to do that because, you know, up the chain, the Pope said, here's exactly what you say. Even more important, the Pope said, I have transferred grace because I am the source of grace. And the reason that he can baptize is because that grace came from the Pope. And so when he says we, he's saying the congregation can have grace, and the congregation doesn't have grace. The Pope did not give it to them. And so it undermines the whole authority of the papal structure if you switch it to we. This isn't the only time this has happened. This has happened a lot of different times. You know, even, you know, the times of the Reformation you had where whole countries were excommunicated, where they couldn't get married according to the Catholic Church's definition of a true marriage. They couldn't take communion. They couldn't do any baptisms, all because the Pope had cut them off. So here's a section from the article. His error means that countless baptisms and irrevocable requirement for salvation in Catholic theology will have to be performed again. And some churchgoers could find their marriages are not recognized. An invalid baptism invalidates any subsequent sacraments, especially confirmation, marriage, and holy orders, the Diocese of Phoenix said in a webpage intended to address parishioners' questions. So you basically have people, and then maybe if they, if they died before being rebaptized, they might be in hell according to Catholic theology. And so it's a pretty, pretty serious error worked itself out into a pretty, in a pretty serious way. And, you know, literally what they're saying is that because they later found out after many years, they found out he was using the wrong word and saying that the congregation had authority, which is what it came down to. Because of that, children are now illegitimate because their parents weren't married. I mean, think about that. That's, that's pretty serious to turn around and say all these children are illegitimate, that they don't have a, a married father and mother, because it's not just the father and mother. I mean, yeah, they're saying that they're committed to fornication and that, you know, I mean, it's it's very, very evil. And, and, and on the other hand, it should be taken seriously. And I don't mean that this should be taken seriously, but what I mean is, is there's this part of it where authority is real. And authority really does come. And so, I mean, if the church, if the congregation did not have authority, and if it really did come from the Pope, this would be a perfect, I mean, this would be a legitimate position to take. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, one of the things we've kind of talked about is how that you always start off with fundamental principles. And once you start off with those principles, you make logical conclusions from them because 
You either believe the things you start off with or you don't. You're either playing a game or you're actually saying these things are real. And there is the reality of these spiritual things. And so, I mean, and this is directly contradicted by early in Acts when it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and a fellowship. And the word for fellowship there is this thing that you buy into, this thing that you are a partaker of. This, and so, and so it's, it's saying that each of, these, each of them there are partakers in this thing, not that they're partakers through someone else, not that they're, that they're like partners in a law firm. They're like partners in a medical fellowship where they each own in some way some part of the undertaking. And that's very different than, than what this is saying. It's very different than what the Episcopalian model is saying. And Scripture actually talks about these things and and gives real definition to these, you know, to these structures. And this isn't a, the er- an error that you could ignore if you're not in a Catholic church where all grace has to come through the Pope. You know, it's a thing where in smaller ways you can have the same problem creep up. You know, are you looking at, um, so, so you have someone um, in authority, and are they in authority because an important person in the denomination put them in authority, or are they in authority because... Uh, of God working through them, the gifts that God has given them, you know, the choice of the congregation. Um, this can be a real difference. You know, are you looking for that touch from the holy man, the healer, to c- fix your problems? Are you looking even for, you know, sp- uh, special um, recognition because you spent certain years at a seminary um, and you could you could have it, th- what you're looking from from the seminary is getting the grace that the Catholics say come from the right. Pope. I mean, it's a... This famous man put his hands on me, and that means something right. more. Right, or I studied under R.C. Sproul Jr., I studied under this person, and it's and not that it's wrong to study under someone or wrong to go to seminary, but it's an error that you have to watch out for. And, I mean, we should just recognize the level that this goes because, you know, the whole pedophilia scandal in the Roman Catholic Church the reason that it, the Roman Catholic Church treated it the way they did, where they covered it up, is because if the grace that the priest had was because of the Pope, and it was the Pope's grace upon that priest, when he molests the young boy, well, does that mean that the Pope can't give grace? Because that's why he's a priest, by the authority and the ability of the Pope. And so they can't expose it because if they do, that shows the Pope's a fraud. So they covered up all these hundreds of priests that were molesting young boys. They covered it all up because if they expose it and people look at their doctrine, what they recognize is the Pope's a fraud. And so it has real costs. And like you were saying, it has real costs now. You have, you have these leaders that are famous, you know, that are, that are well-known and that they have a following. And people hide the sins of the following because they're going, I received grace from them. I got my power to follow after God from them. So we can't expose their sin. And so there's a lot of sin that gets hidden in the church because people aren't willing to say anything because it will bring down the man of God. And, and germane to our topic and the way that we're approaching it, it's really it's the structure of this kind of church that enables the church to think that it's got the authority to deal with that kind of sin within its own walls. And, and you know, however it decides to deal with it, well or, or poorly, but, but that that's a sin that, hey, that this church is structured like a state because it's structured like mm-hmm. a state. It can 
execute judgment like a state. Instead of saying, hey, this particular sin, this particular sin is a crime that's beyond the scope of what we've been given to deal with, we'll deal with the part of it that we're supposed to deal with, we'll deal with the man as a sinner, but he also needs to be turned over to the state to deal with. And the problem that you've got, and it's a problem that goes way back, it's when you start structuring a church like a state, eventually it's going to start behaving like a state. That goes way back. That goes way back. I mean, you have times when you have, you know, <coughs> papal armies. I mean, you know, we just that just doesn't make sense. I mean, you can't imagine a Southern Baptist army, I guess. Um, but I'm, unless I'm they're trying. going to Disneyland, <laughs> right, right, with their crockpots, and and then you have say something like the the Anglican structure where the church is just an arm of the state. And so it's just another way that the state decides to exercise authority is not just through civil magistrates, but now the, the, in a sense that there is a muddying of the distinction at the authority level between the secular and the sacred, where there really needs to be a separation. Right. So. And that, you know, that creates all kinds of problems when you, when you start to, to mix that, because all of a sudden under the civil magistrate, Everybody is under the civil magistrate, under the ecclesiastical magistrate. Really, the only ones that they have direct authority over are those who are believe and those who profess belief. And so, all of a sudden, you can't tell the difference because if it's the king that's appointing the local bishop or the archbishop, guess what? Now, everybody in the country is under that archbishop, whether they're professing belief or not. Everybody has to profess belief because the authority of the king is over them and putting them in that position. So you almost always get that you fill the churches with people that are unbelievers. You know, and that's something that, you know, these days with the secularization of modern society, you, you don't really have as much where, you know, because you're, you're an Englishman, therefore you are an Anglican, no matter how, no matter how often you get drunk and the whole list of sins, you know, that's something that, while there, there are problems with sin, we don't have that connection between citizenship and church membership uh, these days so much. But I think you can have some related problems um, where, you know, your standards of doctrine, your standards of holiness, there's a tendency to degrade them because you're in a big denomination with strong with, with with a variety of positions on those issues, and you can't be saying that you know this particular practice is you know heretical because you're in the denomination. I mean, this is most clearly seen again at the Catholic Church, where you have um, people you know who they n know that the Pope does not agree with them on some pretty substantial things, but you know having him as the representative of Christ even though they believe the bible teaches certain things they can't really say it that definitively because the pope doesn't agree with them and their religion is saying that the pope is the guy you have to listen to i thought you were going to say within the southern baptist convention whenever <laughs> <laughs> well i mean with the stuff recently with roe versus wade where they come out and i think it was nancy pelosi who's a roman catholic came out and said there's not any major religion that says abortion's wrong i mean it's like even the religion she professes to believe completely disagrees with her. And so, I mean, there's just this, you know, the people just have to lie. That's what you get forced into a situation where you just have to lie. If you say the Pope's the head of the church, you have to lie so that you can hold your own positions. There are churches where people who 
their husbands died, and the wife gets a pension from the husband, and the wife wants to remarry. So the church does a marriage ceremony, but they don't report it to the state. So she's married to this other gentleman, so that but she can continue to receive her pension. Her husband's. Her right, her husband's pension, husband's. because this is just a spiritual marriage and not a civil marriage. And I mean, and they're just playing. And so there's this, this is, this is, we're hypocrites in how we apply our church structure. And there are people who make pragmatic arguments in a moment of crisis because they want to believe something else. And just to be clear, I mean, we've been talking about some kind of high church examples, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, but this kind of structure is all over the place in American evangelicalism. I mean, you can have it in your down-the-street Baptist church. Pretty much every mega church, we would say, is going to fall under this kind of a structure where you've got somebody at the top who's the figurehead, and then tiers of authority, and then the, the He's great... usually not a figurehead, to be fair. <laughs> but, but the face of the ministry. The face, yeah, the face of the thing, and then tiers of authority underneath, and then the mass of the congregation that has effectively no authority. Right. And have little to no ability to impact the person who's sitting. You know, he's he's too special. He has to be set aside, and he has he's just ministering the word. So you can't talk to him. You can't correct him. You can't deal with his sin. Right. You. I mean, you have uh, some churches where people have gone and looked at the documents and you know what their constitution and whatnot, and they've come up with a, this is actually this guy's organization. Like you know, there's you can't remove him as the pastor. He is the guy. You know, the mega church is is him and so it's he's made himself a little pope over a little little papacy you know as we talk about this i just got back recently from nigeria and you look at nigeria most of the the missionaries that went over they were presbyterian they were pentecostal they were baptist usually that's what their background was so they were not hierarchical and yet virtually every church over there now now has this really strong hierarchy. And so we just need to recognize that there is just such a desire to have this. And it comes from two ways. One is that you can, you have a way to play politics so that you can get an advancement in the church and that you can move forward and you can say, oh, look, I got promoted. I have this position, then I have this position, then I have this position. And now they've even created a second organization so that you can have tiers in that organization too. So it's not just the denomination. But what also happens then all of a sudden is now a pastor, if if he's pastoring a church and they're growing and the denomination doesn't like it, they'll just move him to another church because they have absolute control. They can give him whatever church they want. They can punish somebody. They can they can give them more power. They have complete control. And so Grace comes from them. I mean it becomes that lure. It becomes right? and it's not even it's it's you know how to please them. You get bigger offerings. Right. You get more people in the church. You know what they're looking for, and it has nothing to do with people advancing in the Word of God. What it has to do with is, you know, a bigger church. What it has to do, a bigger building. What it has to do with is, you know, yeah, a bigger offering. And it stops being about holiness. It stops being about righteousness. It stops being about truth. And it becomes not how do you serve your congregation, but how do you serve your master? Because as soon as you get a hierarchy, you have a master. And all of a sudden, what should you be doing? You should be serving your master. Now, Jesus Christ says an elder should serve his master, which is Christ. But the way he serves them is 
by edifying the people for the work of the ministry, right? I mean, it's really clear. But when you start to put those other levels in there— No man can serve two masters. Right, and that's exactly what happens. And so all of a sudden, they they want the promotion. They want the bigger church. They want—and and in Nigeria, you know, they can take you from a church that, you know— is nice electrified, you know, has a thousand people, and they can put you in a church that has 20 people in a dirt floor. And they can do this at their whim without any constraint or any ability for you to. So, who are the people going to serve? They're going to serve, you know, it takes great faith to not serve that master. And so, these denominations, we can look at it and we can say, you know, oh, well, you know, we're talking Roman Catholic or Anglicanism, but. It's it's all over the place, and and there's the seeds of it in most of the Presbyterian churches, and most of the Baptist churches, and most of the Pentecostal churches, because you see what fruit it produces where it was planted, because you know the errors got a lot worse in the next generation and the generation after that, and in in Nigeria it is so hard to reform the church because everybody's afraid they'll get fired. Before we talked about elders being sheep. And there is this part of it where there's there can be this separation now of the elders being distinct from the congregation in a in a in a very real way, so that they're they're no longer they're disconnected from it in a way, and that can cause some that can real cause some forms of dissonance there and some forms of separation that that shouldn't be. Right, because you know Presbyterianism is where you have elders ruling the church, but the elders aren't just elders over your church. Um, the elders of uh, you know, all the local Presbyterian churches are together in this presbytery. Um, and then the presbytery, you know, meets together and decides various things. And, and they, uh, and they're the ones that, um, I, I believe typically the congregation, you know, picks elders, but I believe they have to be approved by the presbytery. Um, I think it works the other way around. They're usually approved by the presbytery, and then the congregation can pick from those that are approved. Okay, I I was looking at the PCA's church order, but uh, there's there's also a wide variety of presbyteries, and I, uh, yes. they're probably not all the same. And then there's also uh, you know other denominations that would have a similar structure, even if not Presbyterian. But anyway, all that, all that to say, one, one, an issue can come up when you have a, a sin issue um, with an elder in the church. And uh, the procedure is different than for a normal church member, because you actually have to go to the uh, Presbytery to deal with it, rather than uh, really dealing with it in the local church. And so the people judging it are people are all the elders from all the other churches in the Presbytery and not really that one congregation. And it's it's sort of like it's like with it's like politicians having to judge other politicians. They tend to go easier on they go easier on themselves. They view themselves as we're in a distinct class and we have this we have this responsibility that other people don't, don't understand, that we're under these pressures. And so there are things that happen, and we allow, we give each other certain allowances. And there's, this, is, this is what can happen, as opposed to the congregation dealing with and them being responsible to the congregation and being viewed as just another sheep, and in fact being viewed as having, being held to a higher standard, they can sometimes be held to a lower standard. And so this is just, it can just be kind of a natural consequence of that type of structure. And, and you, you have... The advantage that um, that the people who are judging that elder are not people who are sitting under his preaching every week, 
um, and are therefore more susceptible to manipulation. I mean, there are people who are supposed to be peers in terms of study and background and all this stuff. Uh, but you also have the other side where, say, there's some, you know, doctrinal or minor-ish sin issue. The Presbytery says, not a big deal. But, and now the church members, you know, what if, what if that church thinks that's not acceptable conduct for an elder? Now they're stuck. Um, there's no recourse because they, you know, they brought for the Presbytery and the Presbytery didn't think it was a problem. And, you know, you're kind of kind of left with the congregation having no choice over who the who, who their elders are. And obviously they always have a choice because they can always go to a different church. And that's an important thing to remember that there's a point in time where you go, this is the right choice. And so there are you know, it's easy to look at these structures and see the problems and pretend like you can't escape. But the reality is, you know, when it was the Anglican Church was the only church in England, that was different. But where we are now as a, as a country and most countries in the world fall into this category is you can say, well, this church has problems. And yes, the Presbytery wouldn't hear it, but I can mitigate the damage to my own family by going to another church. And so, you know, there's there's. Yeah, and people should recognize that that's a valid option. And we we have on the list to do a topic on when should you leave a church and how what's the right way to leave a church because you shouldn't just flip from church to church and that's not right. But there is a there is a time to do that and there is a right way to do that. Right. This, this, yeah, I mean this definitely changes the calculus for when you do that because if you're in a different kind of church with a different sort of structure, your responsibility level, your your responsibility to stay and fight is different because you can't fight in some ways the only way you sometimes can fight is by by moving right because we're coming from a perspective that church membership is serious and it's not something to be taken lightly and so you know the fact that well yeah you could go to a new church but that's not something that it's not you know you know changing the station on the tv i mean that's a big it's a big step to take and again, the, like I said earlier, there are these things where people object to things sometimes because they say there's impracticalities in them. If God prescribes something, God can overcome the impracticalities through his Holy Spirit. And the other thing I think we said from the beginning was you're never going to have a model that eliminates sin because, man, is there, you're dealing with sinners. You're dealing even with the unsaved mixed in among the saved. And so you're not going to have a scenario where you don't have problems. I mean, sometimes the impracticalities there are a feature, not a bug. You know, we talked about stoning earlier. Stoning is not the most practical way to kill somebody. If if you want to do capital punishment, it's just not. Guillotines and lethal injection and firing squads, all so much more practical. But what is it that you're trying to accomplish, you know, by putting these sorts of things in there that that may look like they're slowing down the process. That might be God's intention. Right. And I mean, one thing that I'll say about, you know, the Presbyterian thing is you kept saying it's it's local. The biggest problem that I have with it is it's almost never local. It's usually a pretty, you know, it's at least a few hundred miles for most Presbyteries. That's not local. The people don't know. And so the people that are making the argument, they might go and say, well, in Jerusalem, they all got together. All the elders got together in in Acts 15, and they all met together, and they discussed it, and so they made a judgment. But that's a lot different than what Presbyteries look like today. I mean, PCA is huge, and even though I think they have subsections that would be the ones that would hear, they're still 
a broad swath so that most of the people in the congregation don't know most of the most of the elders as opposed to if you had it where it was small enough so that there was intercommunication between so everybody knew then you could start to say i trust this man's judgment and we are supposed to trust people's judgment they don't necessarily have to be sitting in church with us to say this is somebody that's qualified to judge but on the other hand if you have a bunch of people that are spread out over 100 miles of radius i mean how do you know those people to be able to say this is somebody that i would trust the judgment to and another issue that can arise which i don't know if it'd be a, one of the most major issues but you know you have instances where uh depending on the rules of the presbytery where if there's a local church that once that says this presbytery we're in is you know they're going heretical they're unbiblical we want to go to a different presbytery or actually they by the rules of the presbytery they can't really do that because you know the church there's no procedure to leave the presbytery you know the church building is even owned by the presbytery and so they basically have to you know shut down that church and reconstitute as a new church which is not the end of the world but it is also kind of a a very you know strange sort of locking you do. in like okay we're we paid for this church building but now we have to give this church building to this presbytery that we think is heretical and go try to get a new church building it's not not great uh, yeah unfortunately usually the 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 deed on the property is actually in the presbytery's name so it's not even a choice of whether it's not like you have to give it to them it's theirs and unless they voluntarily give it to you it was theirs when you bought it because you bought it and you assigned the deed to the presbytery and so this can be very frustrating for places and you look at the you look at PCA now, it's going through divisions. PCUSA went through divisions. OPC came out of it. I mean, you have all these things that have the presbyteries keep dividing. And when it's a big division where you have a third of them leave, a lot of times for the lawsuits and stuff, they give the churches. But if it by churches, I mean church buildings. But if it's just one congregation leaving, they they usually don't go, oh, yeah, you can take your building that you paid for. They go, nope. You dated it over to us. It's That's our the building. reason why they had them deeded to them, right? I mean, right, so right. they I could mean, have control over it. Right. I mean, and and you know, God's people can can work through that in a local congregation. You know, God can bring them through that. But it's a big incentive to stay um, to stay united with people that you think are heretics or not worthy of unity with, because it means we're losing this building that's thousands and thousands of dollars. And I think I think it's worth saying. I mean, you know, so obviously we're we're Baptists, and so we we're not part of a Presbyterian. But there are people who are who are Presbyterians who we consider to be brothers in Christ, who we consider to be, you know, that we would consider to have fellowship with. I mean, so I mean, you know, we consider and we can say these things, and at the same time, we wouldn't say this about the general Roman Catholic Church. And we would, I mean, the you know, the the problem with the Roman Catholic Church isn't just its structure, but its structure itself is fundamentally against the nature of Christ. The Presbyterian model is not fundamentally against the very nature of Christ. I mean, it is, it's not something that you look at and you go, this is just a heretical model. And it, I mean, that is not the situation. And so, I mean, this, I, I think that's been clear from what we've said, but I just, you know, wanted to point that out because it's very easy for people to misunderstand something, criticism as, as derision. But then, the, and then they add a qualification on top of a qualification. Of course, <laughs> and, you know, hist <laughs> historically you can find, a, you know, a lot of people we would say would be sound in the you know episcopal type structure right. as well so you know. sure i mean one other thing that that i've seen happen in presbyteries a lot is that 
all the same. And I've seen it in, in even ARPCA, you know, the Reformed Baptists, because it was the same problem that you see in presbyteries, because they didn't officially delegate authority, but they kind of delegated authority. And so because of that, all of a sudden, people wanted to be a star of the presbytery. And they would argue strongly that it wasn't a presbytery, that it was just a, a association. association. But it ends up that that they would go and say things and accept things that that if the congregation, like Arbka, they, they knew about somebody, you know, one of their leaders, the sons of the leader who's now in prison. They knew that he had touched a young man in a way that was very, a young child in a way that was very sexually inappropriate. And yet they covered it up for 20 years. And so, and why did they do that? Because they were less desiring to follow Christ than they were to get win points with the people that were the important people in that association. And the same thing happens in presbyteries is that the people, instead of saying, how am I serving my church, just like they do with the other hierarchy, with the presbytery, they can be, how do I get more you know, in with the presbytery? How do I get in with the, the people that are better known? And, and, you know, and right. it starts to be that it's not about a pastor shepherding his flock. It's about a pastor trying to become more acceptable to the other pastors. Right. I mean, if you have basically senior pastor-owned churches, pastor-completely controlled churches, and an association, you're, you're, it's an ad hoc presbytery. I mean, you're kind of – it's a roll-your-own sort of guilty by association. So what are the problems with congregational? The congregation – <laughs> Amen. Preach it, brother. <laughs> a few things we've kind of already touched on is you can have a church where the authority is coming from the congregation, and yet you still end up in the same situations where, you know, you have one senior pastor and his word is law, um, and you basically just have a mini, mini Catholic church in your Baptist church. You have a form of anarchy, basically, where there's really no one in charge, and the congregation has the authority, which means they don't really want to listen to anyone, and nothing really gets done except by committee here and there, and there's really just, there's really no leadership, and there's, you know, it's just a, and, yeah, a mob. And and some denominations, that's by design, you know, Quaker and, and things like that, it's where we're going to have, we're going to have no authority at all, we're just going to be just the congregation deciding everything. Right. That's the house church movement. Right. We're all brothers. Having no leadership is just about as big of a problem as uh, having 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 uh, you know bishops because both of them are saying we're going to come up with our own structure, um, divorced from the structure that God gives in Scripture. I mean, because you you do see churches in Scripture that don't have elders at a particular time, but you clearly have instructions that you do need authority. So long term, your plan is to be. There needs to be authority in the church. It's not everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And definitely, you know, over the last 20 years, the big shift has been towards towards megachurches. And megachurches where you have one person leading 20,000, that is not the scriptural model. It's not. The scriptural model is that the elder has to give an account for the soul of every person in the congregation. Well, if you have 20,000 people, most of whom you've never met, you're not giving. You're not prepared to give an account for them. That's not the scriptural picture. That very much is the picture of the sacred secular. He's the guy who's in charge. You know, he's the head of the church that has twenty thousand people in it. And and you know, even the Southern Baptist Convention, right? J.D. Greer. I mean, that's 
the size of his church. But that's who they elect to be president. And, and it's very much this idea of not that you're an end sample to the flock, but that you're this separate person. And, you know, you go to Southeastern and they push that kind of thing. They push that idea that you're a separate from the congregation. You're not part of it. I know somebody that went to a, to a class on pastoral ministry over there, and they said you should live at least 20 miles away from your congregation so that they have to drive to see you so that they won't bother you so that you can be separate and distinct. These are all very unbiblical ideas. And so these same problems that you have with the congregation, or excuse me, with the Presbyterian or with the Episcopal model, it's really easy to bring them into the congregational model as well. I mean, you know, um, you you know you know you're falling into that when you go to church on Sunday morning and you don't have a a preacher standing at the front of the congregation. You know, you're in a room with a thousand people and you're watching a video screen of a pastor in a room with even more thousands of people because. You know, there's no one apparently fit in those thousands of fellow congregants with you to, to preach on Sunday morning. I mean, in the in the congregational model, you know, the way I at least the way we practice it, I mean, I would compare it most to like sort of like the Senate body. Each member in the you know, each member in the church has a they each have equal authority with each other. And but they're also there are leaders within the church. There, there are leaders within the group. And what are the downfalls of it is if the Holy Spirit is not working and if you're not leaning on the Holy Spirit, it can be as ugly as the Senate. I mean, you've seen the inefficient, if you've, if you've seen the United States Senate or the House of, you know, the, the House of Representatives, it can be really hideously ugly because there is no unity there. And so if the Holy Spirit isn't bringing unity, it can be inefficient, it can be divisive, it can be vicious. But if the Holy Spirit is leading, it's incredible. And, and it's, it's an incredible thing to behold. And so, again, this is, this is where I would say if you're trying to be pragmatic and solve the problems of human nature, the congregational model isn't something you would just go to and go, oh, yeah, we should do that. I mean, that's not, that's not where you would immediately go. But if the Holy Spirit is leading, that's how it can work. Just as an analogy, if you've heard us talk about education, everyone at this table says, Oh yes, homeschooling is a superior model of educating your children in most cases, and that's what we recommend. We think that's the most biblical form of doing it. But if you think that the structure and form of home education by itself is sufficient for your children, for your responsibility as a parent, then you're totally missing the boat. It's not going to, it's not going to solve all your problems to just switch from one form of education to another. Likewise, it's not going to solve all your problems just to switch from one form of church government to another just by the form itself. If the Holy Spirit's not working, then you're just going to have a different set of problems crop up. I do think that the reason that you get like the Roman Catholicism that has basically been in the form that it's been in for, say, 1600 years or something or 1500 years, the reason you get that is the people in the congregation didn't want to do the work. And there will always be men that rise up that say, I'll do the work. Just, you know, it's like there's the thing in the the Bible that talks about, you know, these various trees and, you know, will you lead us? No, I won't. I'm too busy. I'm, I'm you know, my my fruit pleases both God and man and, you know, and all these. And then finally the, the thistle bush goes, I'll lead. And everybody goes, sure, fine. Well, I mean, that's what happens. That's exactly what happens when the congregation just says, hey, we're not willing to do the work. We're not willing to make sure that the church is going in the direction that it should go. The ones that will 
say, yeah, I'll go ahead and lead. They'll right. be the thistle plant. And, and you have to, if you're going to have something that endures for 1,600 years like you're talking about, it has to be because of, it has to be something that deals with the human nature, with the sin of, you know, they, they have to deal with the sin of man without the Holy Spirit. And so, I mean, again, you can't have this, you can't have this congregational model. It doesn't work without the Holy Spirit. I mean, it really does start to tear itself apart. It really does start to cause these problems. And so, I mean, it's the, the re, one of the reasons for the lure of the other is you can induce this sort of top-down form of stability. You can, you can regulate things more. You have more ability to regulate things than you do in the congregation model. Because one model. of the issues with the congregation model, if the Holy Spirit's not there, is that, you know, well, the, the most obvious sin available is rebellion against authority. And if if your authority starts and stops with the congregation and the sin that manifests is rebellion against that authority, well, you're done. One generation and it's over. Right. You know, that's one of the one of the things that rebellion uh, to authority can manifest itself is that the moment the church doesn't do what you want. Because, you know, you think we're congregationalists. That means I have authority. And so the m moment that, you know, you get rebuked in sin, you don't like something the pastor does you get bored with his preaching you just go find a new church and that's something that you know these days is not just a congregational this problem it's you know every denomination has has church hopping uh where you just go where wherever you you feel like people are doing what you want them to do but it seems to me that the most classic way to rebel is actually you have authority and the way you rebel when you have authority is you don't exercise it you just sit back that's right. the most cl classic rebellion, and that's how you get the Presbyterian model that wants to delegate it all to the Presbyterian. That's how you get the hierarchical model, is because the rebellion against authority isn't like raising up a pitchfork and going to war against it. It's, I'm going to rebel against authority. I'm not going to do the things that I should do. I should right. be exercising authority, and I'm not going to. And that's the most common form of rebellion. Right. And that's how it quickly degrades into these other forms, because you don't want to do the work. I think there's also a lot of details in a lot of congregational congregational churches that that would be worthy of criticism, probably not at this point, this moment. But you have a lot of issues with things like, you know, the congregation decides it's going to order things however it wants to, and so the people really running the church aren't isn't the pastor or the elders that they put in place. It's the pastor search committee, which is now headed by people who. Uh, there are no scriptural qualifications for, and if there were, they would not meet them, and they're the ones running the church, and the pastor knows he can't say certain things, or he's going to be fired, and because the congregation is saying, we, we know what we want, and if you're not it, you're out. And I mean, you know, I don't know if it's true anymore, because there was a movement away from it, but I know, you know, 25 years ago, like 98% of Baptist church were really run by the deacons. And they didn't have to be qualified the way an elder had to be qualified. All they had to do was, you know, you had to trust them with money. And so the church became completely monetarily focused because the people leading it, that's, that's what their qualification was. We trust them with money. And so that creates real problems where all of a sudden you've exalted financial things over spiritual things because the qualifications for the elder are largely spiritual. And the qualifications for the deacons, there's absolutely spiritual things that I'm not saying there aren't. But, you know, part of it, when people look and say, you know, in Baptist churches, when they go, that would be a good deacon, they go, yeah, I trust him with, my, with the money of the church. 
And if you're going to paint broad brush, I think uh, there's much there, there would be typically lower requirements for doctrinal um, uh, doctrinal standards for the pastors of congregational churches, where even bad Presbyterians often you need to say you hold to the Westminster. But a lot of a lot of other churches, their doctrinal statement is very very thin that the pastor has to actually sign on to. Right there's the other check when you have a presbytery that the presbytery can go her, can go heretical, but a lot of times what it does is it stops individuals from going heretical. And so it does take longer to shift the presbytery. And you see that. You see that in, like, adopting, you know, women in ministry and things like that is, yes, presbyteries do this. But, you know, those battles have been fought for decades in the, you know, in the large American presbyteries. Well, some of the, you know, the Baptist churches, you know, in a few years you can flip them over. I mean, the church that we went to, they, they did and then they didn't and then they did and then they didn't. And it kept flipping depending on who was in the congregation. And it wasn't that they were standing on the word of God. It was, you know, it was whoever was charismatic and whoever was leading and whoever would push the issue. And so, again, it was, yeah, it, it makes it a lot more fickle. Yeah, versus, you know, you could go into... You could go into Anglican churches and say, here's stuff from your theology that was adopted hundreds of years ago that you're violating. You could even go into Catholic church and say, here's things that the church father said that you're violating. Um, and you, you don't have that. When you have no, no structure, you could not, you, you don't have that in, in ways that could be useful. One of the other things I know that I grew up in independent Baptist churches. And so, I mean, not only was it congregational, but it was independent in an even greater sense than mm-hmm. others that have associations. But it's it's very easy to make you feel like you're not part of a larger, you're not part of the, the there is no universal church, that there is no body of Christ that you're connected to. And that, you know, I mean, the, with the Catholic church, I mean, it's, first of all, it's baked into the name. And then there's the sense of that there is obviously this top-down organization, so you're part of this huge organization. And then, again, with the presbytery, even though they may be far from you, there's you're connected to things that are far from you and close to you and and w- that are worldwide and and so there is a sense of both the the size and grandeur of the church it's very easy to it can both make you feel isolated and make the church of Jesus Christ feel very small and so there can be a real negative there yeah if you i think if you're going to point uh fingers at our church I mean that'd be one that's easy to do is you you don't have a lot of connection with other uh, other churches just and I think yeah, Jonathan said this earlier, but the the way congregation and the other ones as well, but the way congregational churches, you know, get into problems is the people come and don't recognize they're supposed to come to serve. Instead, they expect to sit there and have people feed them. You know, and I, as I was thinking of a Bible verse, the verse that came to mind was number sixteen three. And they gathered themselves together. This is about Korah. They gathered themselves together against Moses, against Aaron, and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And it's kind of the opposite example. Because when Korah was doing it, he was in rebellion to Moses because Moses did have all the authority. But now God has made us kings and priests. And when we say, well, we're going to just lift this guy up and put him up there and not say, wait a second, the congregation of the Lord is holy, then we're failing kind of in the opposite way that Korah did. He tried to usurp authority that he didn't have. He said, we're supposed to be a holy people. But in the new covenant, 
we are a holy people. And because we're a holy people, we're not supposed to say, well, the only one the Holy Spirit talks to is the pastor. The only one that the Holy Spirit guides is the guy who's preaching. That's a really dangerous position. And and it causes a lot of problems in congregational churches where all of a sudden it means that whatever sins the pastor has, they become accepted in the congregation. And again, we're talking about how you get sins because of your structure. And one of the things about a presbytery, at least, is you have multiple people that are doing a check on each other's sins. If you're just looking to one person, all his sudden his sin is not going to be the things that get called out in the church, and that sin becomes acceptable because sin works like leaven, as Paul says in First Corinthians five. As we come to the end of the episode, one thing that I'd like to that I think is really important because the solution isn't nearly the structure; it's that you're picking the right men. Because the Bible says the kind of men that you want to have lead, right? It's Matthew 20, 25 through 28. But Jesus called unto them and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Too often people are looking for pastors and they're going, we want him to be charismatic. We want him to be friendly. We want him, you know, the kids to love him. We want, you know, blah, 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 all these things. And they forget that if the primary qualification isn't that he wants to serve, then he's not qualified. If he doesn't want the job to serve, if he just wants it to get the paycheck, if he just wants it to have a vocation, if he just wants it to to be up at front, if he wants it for any of those reasons other than to serve, it doesn't matter what the greater structure will be. It will break down because the wrong man was chosen to begin with. So as we discuss these things, you can have an Episcopal structure, you can have a Presbyterian structure, you can have a congregational structure. But the issue is, do you want to serve God? Does the congregation want to serve God? Does the pastor want to serve God? Because the structure can mitigate it. It can slow that down the decay. But the only way for it to grow and for it to be productive and successful is that you're serving God and that it's about the service of God. So these structures are helpful, but they aren't the end-all be-all. Believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord, that's the end. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.